should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull****. It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, 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 welcome. It's Little Friday. It's Thursday, uh, but I call it Little Friday because... Well, let's just face it. I mean, I think people are treating Thursdays nowadays as, uh, as yeah, the in, the interlude, the pre, the prelude to the weekend. Our producer Fong is in studio with us. What's going on, Fong? Hey, um, nothing much. Just a little tired. You're tired today. Yeah. Right. Thursdays do that though. Right. Really? Yeah. yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> We're almost there. We're almost there. Yeah. Friday. Um, that's right that's right fridays we uh we do friends on fridays here which would mean that we will be broadcasting john zipper's uh week-to-week political roundtable talk so he does a really good job in kind of the various topics that of course pertain to progressive voices listeners here um but on our program today i mean we've got uh, a great thursday show for you we'll have discussions regarding gender identities and gender studies um and also just uh, different emotions and feelings that we may feel in within the LGBTQ community. I've been I've been kind of thinking about this a lot. That I find that I don't always feel like I belong, even even in the LGBTQI community. What do you think of that, Fong? Um, what do you mean by you don't feel like you belong? I I just feel outside. I feel different. I feel like I I may not always. I may not always uh, see eye to eye with everyone in our community, and 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 also I may not, I may not like <laughs> everyone in our community, and and I think that that's you know that's true as far as like human beings go, though we're not we're not so you know we we yes I think that love is supposed to be you know the number one powerful thing that can unite us, um, but the reality is that we're we're all humans. Yeah, um, it's it's really difficult to to be liked by everyone and also be surrounded by everyone you want to be surrounded by sometimes. Hey. And it, yeah, um, even though sometimes you're involved in one community, it doesn't mean that everyone will hold the same values because all of us were very different, different it's folks. Exactly where I was going with that. We have different uh, a value system, but we're also really complex. I mean, think about LGBTQI touches on gender, touches on uh, sexual orientation and the differences there, right? But then as as people, we also have ethnic differences or, mm-hmm. you know, diversity in um, just uh, race or, or, yeah, ethnic background, financial background, even our education and our upbringing, our religion. And you put all that together... <laughs> 
it's kind of hard to stay contained in that <laughs> yeah. one box. Yeah. The academic term that we use for that is intersectionality. Intersectionality. Right. So basically different types of identities kind of crossing. And it's basically seen as like a layer of, well, different layers of that person. Yeah. And which I think that this is a great segue to our uh, guest today. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our guest today on the phone is Karen Thompson, who is the Associate Professor of English and Gender Studies at USC or the University of Southern California, and also the author of Relocations, Suburban, Queer Suburban Imaginaries, um, which, you know, this also will be a great conversation to have regarding San Francisco. So, Karen, thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to the program. It's my pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, it's like, you know, where do I want to start with you? There's so many things that we can, we can talk about. Uh, but maybe let's start with, you know, just kind of what Fong and I were talking about earlier in, in how diverse and complex the LGBTQI community actually is and uh, how we all have, you know, so many differences, but yet uh, to at least pop culture, the media and, and even, you know, DC, uh, we're seen as one oppressed group. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, but that that sort of belongs to, you know, that's that's sort of the consequence of every oppressed group in the U.S. is that because I think we're so attached to the way representation works through the media, through, quote-unquote, visibility, or, uh, you know, through other forms of social media, uh, we want a very simple story to cling to. We want to be able to get to the quick narrative right away. That's why quick takes have become so popular in the social media age. We just sort of, hey, Miley Cyrus did this on the VMAs. What do you have to say about it? Like, is it racist? Is it not? And in that sort of environment, um, in that accelerated environment in particular, I think we lose a lot of nuance and some of the and, and many of the nuances of of different. Groups, whether or not it's the LGBTQI element OP, as your opening <laughs> says, community, or um, or Asian American communities, um, other communities of color, etc. Right, right. I know that you know you do a lot of studies regarding media, pop culture, and um, yeah. you know it, it, it's interesting. Even you know, having started this show uh, ten years ago on on something as traditional as radio, where you know it's it, talking about queer issues uh, ten years ago is like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, and now it's uh, being talked about everywhere. But the interesting thing that I see in the last at least ten years and having conversations, especially out there in pop culture, is um, you know that uh, the exposure of our complex identities that it goes even deeper than just being gay or being lesbian. I mean, now we have um, you know, I feel like it we we we're touching on. People are androgynous or non-binary, uh, but maybe that's just me being sensitive to that. What are your thoughts? Well, it's what you know. Fong was mentioning we in academia call something like intersectional analysis, intersectional identities. I think that what we most of us, not only in a scholarly world, but in a broader kind of world of cultural observers and critics are always going to have to search for the language of things that are happening right before our eyes, right? Like we, it's very difficult for us to pinpoint the languages to use 
to describe the richness of these various experiences, um, the departure from the models that we all know so well, right, like binaries um, and like whatever categories we establish in order to understand them. And so I think that um, at the same time that we don't necessarily have the language to describe certain you know, new or emergent identities, I can tell you that, in fact, a lot of people in the younger generation, I sound like really old, all these young folks do and have been developing a very intricate vocabulary for these new intersectional sites of identity that factor everything in from not only sexual desire, but, you know, the difference between sexual desire and romantic desire, right? So, for example, um... Somebody told me you could be a romantic with a capital R, or you could be like a non-romantic, meaning, you know, you don't want that, versus only sexual, right? So the, mm-hmm. it's a kind of specialization of all of these zones of identity. And the, the, the just recently, the most valuable lesson I learned was from a young woman who's uh, actually 15, who's as at a party her parents were at, and she happened to be there. And we got to talking, and she just had such a rich vocabulary and such a wide array and method of understanding her own self moving through the world. I was so impressed I asked her to come and talk to my class about it. And I asked her, where did you learn all this stuff? You know, have you been reading all these amazing new, like, gender studies books I don't know about? And she's like, I got it all from YouTube. Yeah. So, you know, so, I mean, I do think that there's a lot of, kind of, um, self-learning, self-making, the creation of new terms. And I think that those of us who have access to a pulpit or a lectern or a mic on the radio have to be really kind of aware and willing to receive these new languages when they present themselves to us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's, that's so great that you said that. I, I, you know, I was in a meeting the other day with older um, queer and lesbian women who, you know, tripping up on on some of the uh, vocabulary and just said, you know, let's just let's just go back to when it was easier. And I thought that was just an interesting thing, or um, you know, as far as like insight for me goes, because it was like, well, I think it's easier today, even with all the difficult vocabulary, because now we can actually we can actually uh, identify, um, you know, in in the way that we want. Uh, what allows people to feel more comfortable? Like I, I mean, you know, I'm all for shorthand because, you know, as someone who writes a lot of memos and emails and what have you, I'm like, it's just easier <laughs> sometimes to move bureaucratically that way. Um, but it's great that um, younger folks who don't exclusively move through the world as a bureaucratic person or as, you know, someone moving through that kind of governmental system has an opportunity to you know, be creative with their forms of self-expression. Um, but it just shows you, too, though, how um, how the state, how forms, how all the things that we have to deal with from a very bureaucratic perspective are there to really just keep us narrowly defined by certain categories. Michelle Miao, we're speaking with Professor Karen Tongson of USC. Um, you know, Karen, you have a book out, Relocations, Queer Suburban Imaginaries. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. You know, what is... What is the book about? Yeah, sure. Well, at its simplest, the book is really about how um, we often associate queer sexualities, experimental forms of queerness, visibility, safety, um, with cities. and Or we kind of think about the 
dyad or the kind of contrast between the city and the country and the relationship between, you know, rural queer lives, which is supposedly, you know, dangerous, right, or right. under peril, in peril, um, and whatever fabulousness we may find in the city that our trajectory is there. And I kind of wanted to think about what queer life was like in the interstitial places, but in particular in a place organized around sprawl, like Southern California, where our sense of the city is different. Our sense of urban mapping isn't as vertical as it is in New York, um, you know, or in San Francisco even, um, or as densely laid out. And so what forms of sociability can happen in spaces of sprawl? How do we improvise with the chain spaces that suburbia provides for us? And what forms of creativity and intimacy can be found in some unusual places, particularly in the SoCal region, which is not a whitewashed suburbia at all, um, but is a tremendously diverse set of suburbias and points of first contact for many immigrant communities. Right. Wow. That is, uh, I mean, the best way that someone has described it to me, just because my partner, you know, is from the Southern California area and Orange County, and Ed always I'd always had to counter people's thoughts and perceptions regarding how, as you said, it whitewashed that it was. And sure, there's certain pockets of affluence or, you know, wealth um, that can contribute to or attribute to, you know, say Caucasian people. But there's a huge immigrant (laughs) community, especially Asian community. Um, And so, you know, I want to get into that in terms of, you know, sexuality and queer sexuality and being open. um, In the Asian community in general, you know, sexuality is sometimes or most times uh, my feelings are oppressed, you know, in in public, at least. We just don't show affection in that way. Uh, What are your thoughts? Well, I think that there are different ways in which same sex modes of affection are very open, actually, in a lot of different Asian communities in Asia, right? Sort of female friendship and uh, even, you know, sort of um, male friendship or whatever are much more expressive and not kind of filtered through the lens of same-gendered relations here in the U.S. Uh, And so, like, you have, from where I'm from, the Philippines, for example, there is already a kind of rich vocabulary for understanding the role certain queer people play in those communities, right? Um, although some of those roles are pretty strict. But, in the, you know, one of the things about the suburban, like, setting for understanding race and sexuality is that you have, you know, coming together at once the sort of um, suburban desire to conform and for things to be the same and for there to be a narrative of success, right, and of of lives being perfect, the perfectly edged lawn, the picket fence, et cetera, right? Um, coming to, in, you know, like really kind of merging with a sort of model minority desires in various Asian American communities, the desire to fit in, the desire to become a part of the American fabric. And so when you have those two, um, those two really powerful desires meshing and melding together, uh, it can create an atmosphere of, you know, sort of self-policing, not only kind of policing one's behaviors that kind of, that you would be comfortable with back in Asia in various ways, kind of same-sex displays of affection and girl culture and cuteness and what have you, right? Um, But, you know, it can create these doubled or exponentially increased forms of repression, as you Mm -hmm. were saying. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But my whole thesis is that actually <laughs> that's not the case. I mean, that's what we would assume might happen. But actually um, being placed in these kind of securitized environments allows people to sort of find hacks, for lack of a better word, or alternative methods of um, expressing their queerness, coming together, of remaking what suburbia has given them into something cool for themselves. Karen, we're going to take a quick break right here, but when we come back, we'll continue our very, very in-depth and interesting conversation. So you'll stick around? Sure, sure. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. On the phone with us is our guest, Karen Tongson, who's the Associate Professor of English and Gender Studies at USC, University of Southern California. And we were just talking about Karen's uh, book that was uh, released in 2011, Relocations, uh, Suburban Imaginaries. I'm sorry. Relocations, queer suburban imaginaries. <laughs> the queer one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and so, I, you know, this is just so interesting to me because it's like I feel, it, you know, here's, here's, here's kind of like my day, right? It's like I spend a lot of my time in queer San Francisco, which is liberating 
um, and, and empowering at times. But then I go home and I find myself just living a, a, a much more heteronormative life. And so I do the daily things of um, sometimes even finding myself putting myself in a box of, you know, take the trash out and that's my job. And, and, uh, you know, and, and, and then my partner does the cooking and, and, and it almost feels odd. Like, no, I need to queer it up. <laughs> does that sound, I'm just playing mind games with myself, huh, Karen? Well, but you know, that could happen if you were living in a loft in Soma or in a suburban home, like in Daly City or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you could be in that kind of domestic scene or domestic space, no matter where you are, even in the heart of Manhattan, right? You know, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, you know, the thing that I'm actually interested in, as I was saying, is that the ways that, you know, people have really transformed suburban space, for example, in particular youth transformed suburban space in the 80s, 90s, etc., and turned them into these awesome kind of queer experimental places in, in venues you wouldn't expect it. Mm. For example, you know, um, there used to be these nightclubs at Disneyland and Knott's Berry Farm uh, that were 18 and under, right? And the whole point was to keep kids from commuting into L.A. to go to the really seedy dance clubs, and they'd be under parental supervision and what have you, and the supervision of the parks. But, you know, the, the youth who were going to Studio K and Cloud 9 and at Knott's Berry Farm or it's knockoff Videopolis at Disneyland. We're doing all sorts of experimental, cool, crazy, queer things. And, you know, stylistically through music, uh, with their dancing, or with like meeting other people. Uh, and so they transformed that space into a place of proto queer possibility. Um, and also the parties that people used to, you know, what, if you don't have anywhere to go, if you can't party at your parents' house, um, you know, if you don't have any, like, cool coffee shops to go, especially the 80s, 90s, you know, no Starbucks even, yeah. right? Um, where are you going to get a party together? Well, uh, a bunch of kids would get together and book a ballroom at, like, the Holiday Inn or something like that, right? And create a dance party or dance club there or a small show. So this is... Allowances and resources together. So, you know, yeah. I'm just interested in how people take the mundane and turn it into something really amazing and fabulous, which is pretty queer, right? That is pretty queer. And I I think that that's happening more now um, than I would say than, than ever only because I feel like historically speaking, I mean, we established gay bars and lesbian bars specifically to meet other lesbians and and other gay or other queer people. But today, and kind of to your point, is that, you know, we're transforming other places outside of even just the bar to get together um, and and queerify it. (laughs) I think it's a good word to put it. Because here in San Francisco, we don't actually have a lesbian bar anymore. It's it's non-existent. It's gone. Um, They've all gone away. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but what what I do find is that you know there may not be a, a you know a lesbian bar, but there are lots of queer places like the yeah. Dolores Park, for example, which is a public park, and you know, but there's the the area where the queers hang out, the gay beach <laughs> is what they call it. I wonder if people do that down in Orange County. I mean, you guys have all of those really beautiful beaches um, and that that usually are occupied by well. Uh, rich people. <laughs> oh yeah, there's still this the gay beach that I've been going to since I was like in high school or actually in college, I guess. Um, in Laguna is still there, and it's still this weird like 
if you pass the Taco Bell and go this way, you'll find this weird staircase that looks like a private staircase, but it's not, you know, it's kind of, um, that's also where part of the pleasure and play of, of finding these spaces in suburbia comes from, right, is, is the kind of the adventure of it and the, the you know, um, the willingness to seek something out that doesn't make itself so easily available to you, like in a city where, hey, I've just, you know, I trip and fall, and next thing you know, I'm in the middle of a gay bar, right? You mm-hmm. know, um, there's something too about going on this journey or going on the search, and then meeting other people at your destination. That's really wonderful. And so, absolutely, there are places like that. And also, you know, lesbian sociability manifests in different ways. So, I write about lesbian softball, for example. <laughs> you know, um, and other forms of of socializing in the book that artists have represented, et cetera. And that's why I'm writing a book now about karaoke, actually. I was just um, about to, to talk about that. <laughs> uh, so you're working on two books, um, which there's one, Normal Television. I do want to talk about television. Critical Essays on Queer Spectatorship After the uh, Quote-Unquote New Normalcy and Empty Orchestra, Karaoke karaoke in Our Time, which critiques oh. the... Uh, Wow, you're just going to have to tell us what it critiques because it sounds really in-depth, far beyond my intelligence well, yeah. level. Well, the, there's two parts to the karaoke project. One is just a sort of um, media archaeology, as I would call it, of the invention of the karaoke machine and its dissemination and circulation from Japan and the Philippines through into the U.S. and other places. So that's one dimension of it that's about the technology. But the other part of it actually thinks about how we use karaoke as a metaphor in our contemporary moment. Like, you know, if you watch reality TV and it's a bad performance or a really derivative one, you know, Simon will say, that was karaoke, you know, right? Mm. Like, karaoke is now a keyword for a bad copy. <laughs> and so the, what I actually really kind of sprawl out thinking about in this book is the relationship between karaoke, bad copies, and how karaoke is used as a, a new aesthetic term or something that evaluates art and originality in our present time, while thinking about karaoke as all you know, as and bad copies in relation to kind of queer topics and the notion of the queer is a bad copy, um, the queer subject is a bad copy, etc. So it really becomes an occasion to think about some of those old, worn-out topics, originality and imitation uh, through a new technological lens related to sexuality and identity. I'm going to have to take one of your classes uh, if I ever... (laughs) can't get in and <laughs> that's so deep um, now let's uh let's talk about something i'm really interested in which is television you know and, uh-huh. and it's still interesting to this day when i describe to people that we have a local television show that is all you know queer inclusive lgbtqi um and it's still kind of one of the only ones and and i wonder i mean if there's even space for that for it just exclusive lgbtqi content well i mean there's space for all sorts of content at this point, you know, in the kind of televisual world. But, um, you know, the, the, the thing that I've been interested in is less about how much queer people want to see themselves on TV, but how much we love seeing really normy people on TV <laughs> and what that does for, you know, what kind of fantasies that activates in us, right? It's a little bit of a reversal of, you know, you know uh, straight people 
pruriently looking at queer lives and, you know, being anthropological about it. I think that one of the things I'm doing in the normal television book, which is a much shorter book of essays, is really about how our queer desire works itself out through what is the most generic, normiest, sentimental, white uh, <laughs> kind of liberal programming on network TV. And, you know, let's talk a little bit about that and uh, new normalcy. I mean, um, I feel like the the characters or the roles, the, the, the faces that television, when it comes to queer identity, is, uh, you know, a, a, they're accommodating to would be a face that is less, I want to say, Threatening is the word. Less threatening meaning, you know, like Anderson Cooper, Andy Cohen, they all don't look very gay um, uh-huh. un- until you, you know, you, you listen to or you talk, you hear them talk about like content and whatnot. Uh, what, you know, and then, and then I look at the emerging faces today and someone like a Ruby Rose, for example, in Orange is the New Black, who is Australian, uh, but tatted up who pretty much looks like the female version of like Justin Bieber. So I almost feel like media has this weird relationship in where it might not even know what it wants from queer representation. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think about TV in general, right? Queer or not, um, it has a particular set of types and you see those across the board, right? white, right? Yeah. Generally attractive, but in a kind of basic way, right? <laughs> um, TV, TV isn't very capacious, at least, you know, especially drama, isn't, isn't as capacious about, like, you know, who we get to see on screen. Um, but the other genres of television, and particularly, you know, something like reality TV has really changed the dimension of what, you know, what the, the body types that we see on TV, the range of people and classes we see on television, for better or worse, sometimes, you know, in really kind of terribly, you know, supposedly unscripted contexts, but really, you know, as kind of spectacles for, for everybody else, right? So I do, you know, I think, um, I do think that we, there actually have been a range of other people who've, like, made appearances across the different forms of television, across its different current platforms. But for the most part, you're only going to get one Mindy Kaling who gets to be, you know, the heroine uh-huh. of her own kind of rom-com, you know, rom-com uh, sitcom, right? right. Uh, not a lot of other, not a lot of other people are going to get that kind of opportunity. Or you have something like Shondaland, right? You know, <laughs> uh, across her shows, right? Who creates these different, like in differently raced worlds, but it's not a lot of TV that still is willing to do that. Uh, and you know, and we can see something like Fresh Off the Boat and see how that show has struggled, or you know, all these yeah. other shows, right? Oh man, I, I wish we had more time to talk about Fresh Off the Boat. I need to talk to someone who understands it. But we ran out of time. Darn, we're gonna have to have you back, Karen. Well, it was a good time. I'm glad uh, we had a chance to chat today. Yes, absolutely. On Thank Bitty you. Friday, was it? Or pre-Friday, or what do you call it? Little Friday. It's a little, little Friday. Friday. <laughs> <laughs> Karen, thank you so much for dropping by and for sharing your, your intelligence, deep thought, and knowledge with us. Thanks for letting me chat away. 
Karen Tongson, she's the Associate Professor of English and Gender Studies at the University of Southern California. If you get a chance, you can catch her book or buy it. Better yet, just just buy it on Amazon.com, which is called Relocations, Queer Suburban Imaginaries. Don't go away. When we come back, we'll continue the show. Lena. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years and uh, over the past couple of months I just opened up my club Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people, and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. And, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for Spotlight you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Our guest today on the phone is Neil Broverman. He's the executive editor of The Advocate and also a contributing editor to Plus Magazine. And he's here with us today to talk about a wake-up call for him personally, but also I think a, a, a conversation that we should have ongoing when it comes to the HIV-AIDS community. It's so easy to think that everything's gotten better, that you, you're almost desensitized to uh, the disease and how it affects our community, especially with, you know, PrEP and and uh, reports coming out that it absolutely is effective when talking about non-infected individuals and their, uh, you know, probability of being infected. And so I'd like to welcome Neil to the show. Neil, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, we had the chance to read your article that you posted up at HIVPlusMag.com or Plus Magazine, I should say, in which... Um, you speak openly about about a wake up call. Tell us about it. Yeah, it just involved uh, some friends uh, that I have that have HIV, and their stories are a lot more dramatic than 
you usually hear, which are uh, what you hear about HIV now seems like it's just manageable. It's just something you deal with. It's it's not really uh, it doesn't really affect your life. And these stories that I saw and that personally uh, reminded me that it is still very much uh, an, an issue and something that we have to work to prevent and hopefully cure one day. Uh, two friends of mine, um, one passed away, Brad Crelia, and he had other diseases aside from, from HIV, and um, it was a hereditary disease that he was fighting, and HIV was, was sort of um, another, another one of his battles. Um, but he, he started a, a site called Hibster, and I interviewed him a few years ago when he started the site, and he was just a sweet guy, an ambitious guy. He did a lot for the HIV cause, and um, he sadly passed away. Um, I, I believe it was, it was mostly from the hereditary disease, but um, he was obviously affected by HIV, and it, it was just a, it was a crushing blow to a lot of his friends in the Seattle community where he's from. And uh, so that happened, and my friend Michael Matson, who I used to work with at The Advocate, he has HIV, he's had it since the early 90s, and has just, it's been debilitating since then. You know, he, he contracted HIV before the cocktail was a modern, was, it was a common thing, the drug cocktail. And, and uh, his, he luckily lived with the disease long enough to, to have the cocktail, but his health still suffered from it. The drugs um, affected his system, and he found himself in the past few years unable to work. And he had to go to Kickstarter to help fund his, um, sorry, that's my email. Uh, he had to go to Kickstarter to help fund his, his life and his rent and just his living expenses. And, uh, you know, I think when I heard those stories, it just, it was a wake-up call that, that HIV is serious and it's something that we need to pay attention to. And especially in communities like, um, you know, African-American gay and, and bisexual men, transgender women, um, it's still a very, very serious thing. I wanted to bring this up, and you mentioned your friend Brad. Um, when he passed away, he was fairly young. I think that a lot of us in the LGBTQI community and also, um, yeah, extended communities, when we think about HIV AIDS, uh, we kind of go back in time and, and, and think about the faces that we've read or that we've seen in the media who had passed away and they seem to be a little older. Um, it, you know, Brad was only 29, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. He was a young man and um, just very vibrant. Um, he just, he not only wanted to do so much, he did so much um, in, his, in his short life. So it was especially galling to people who knew him that such a bright light was extinguished. Um, so I know I wasn't the only one that was really kind of taken aback when they heard of his passing. And I want to bring that up. I mean, I almost feel like in, in some parts of our community or some minds, uh, especially younger minds, it's like we have this fearless attitude. Um, and, and some of us might not have that fearless attitude, but we have this attitude of, you know, because medicine has advanced so far and we've got the uh, cocktails of drugs and whatnot and people are living longer with HIV, um, 
that you know it's it's uh it's evident that uh, or it's a you know at least at one point in our life we we may come across that as especially a conversation that happens a lot in the gay male space i just wanted to see what your thoughts were on that well i think from my experience when i was growing up i'm in my 30s and there was a, a major fear that i had uh, once i started realizing that i was gay it was just synonymous gay and AIDS. So I felt like it was, before I could even understand how you contracted it, I felt like I was going to get it. And then when I started understanding how you could get it, and and this was, the internet was just sort of catching on. We didn't have it at home. So I really had no resource to find out how you actually did get it. And, and those aren't questions that you're going to ask your parents. So it just was, when I started coming out, when I started having boyfriends, it, there still was a real dearth of knowledge about it, and there was just fear. So, you know, something, you know, I could do something with a guy that really wouldn't have put me at risk, but I would be just panicked that I that I'm contracted it. And then you'd have to go to a test, get a test, and you'd wait two weeks. I mean, it was just, it was just really terrifying. And thankfully, the young people, the young LGBT people of today don't have to deal with some of the things we did. But, I, but you know, I think some of that fear changed my behavior and made me much more cognizant. I, I don't think we need to be panicked, but I think we need to be aware and change our behavior in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, there's sort of there's a happy medium, I think, between knowledge and panic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're a member of the media, and uh, you know, and, and in studying and reading stories on the media and LGBT media, when we talk about HIV/AIDS stories, I mean, there seemed to you know we had this turn um, in in covering these stories and where we wanted to talk about positive stories, which is great, which is okay because we wanted to provide support for our community in that way. Um, but along along those lines, we saw a decrease in kind of the realistic stories um, like you have just posted here uh, on Plus Magazine in kind of the, the the negative side of it, the scary side of it, and that, you know, the disease still impacts us and our health in a, in a very scary way. Um, you know, in, in a couple cases here with, with Michael... Uh, and his spine and, and not being able to walk. I mean, these are all things it may not be, it may not affect one person, but it could the other. Do you think that we should have a balance of both, you know, real stories like this and, and empowering stories, positive stories? I think so. I mean, I don't, I, I, we don't necessarily want to frighten young people or not just young people, any, any, any LGBT person, but we want to just remind them that there are repercussions to having HIV. Um, obviously, the medication is a godsend, and, and, you know, thank God we have it, but it does take a toll on the body. And if you're not in absolute 100% health, uh, HIV can exacerbate a lot of other problems. And I think it's good to remind people that... Um, Sometimes it's not, you know, you know, PrEP is a good thing if, if you are at risk of contracting it. It's still very important to use condoms. Um, it's, it's, you always have to know the status of your partner. There's, we have to remind people that, that it's not just, <laughs> it's, 
it doesn't it doesn't have any effect on your life. It does have an effect on, on, on your life. And I think when you tell these personal stories like that of Brad and Michael, it, it's much more affecting uh, rather than just saying, be careful, you know, you're, something bad will happen if you're, not, if you're not careful. I think if you tell these people's stories, personal stories, then it kind of resonates a bit more. So I think it is important to, to share stories like this. You mentioned prep, and uh, we're going to take a quick break here. But when we come back, can I can I probe a little bit more on what your thoughts are regarding prep and how that might affect, I guess, our sexual behavior within the LGBTQ community? Certainly. Don't go away. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Hi, I'm Marsha Levine, and I'm the parade manager for San Francisco Pride. The thing about working for San Francisco Pride, or really any Pride, is that you're creating a space, a venue, an opportunity for somebody who lives someplace where they're not as free to be LGBT to come out be with others, like them, identify, and feel a sense of community as well as freedom. If pride can do that for just one person and make them feel a part of something instead of making them feel like they're alone, that's why I continue to work on pride to this day. I think that San Francisco especially is a freelancer's dream. It's one of the best cities where you can come and you can work on contract for as little or as much as you want to. It's a a big part of what I do to be able to afford to live in San Francisco. Saving's really important. San Francisco is not an inexpensive place to live. And when you have extraordinary circumstances cropped up, uh, like illness or other expenses, repairs and things like that, if you don't have the savings, that could really affect your ability to remain a viable member of San Francisco's residents. Spotlight on success and achievement, brought to you by Wells Fargo. 
Together, we'll go far. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for uh, thanks so much for joining us here on this Wednesday. Uh, we're taping the show for Wednesday. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Our guest today is Neil Broverman. He's an executive editor of The Advocate and also a contributing editor to Plus. We're talking about an article he posted to Plus Magazine about a wake-up call. Uh, a couple of, friend, of his friends who were HIV positive had passed away. They're fairly young. And um, right before the break, we met, you know, uh, Neil had mentioned PrEP and... We've talked a lot about prep here, especially here in San Francisco. Um, and so, Neil, I kind of wanted to get your thoughts. Do you think that this this pill, some may, might call it the magical pill, that that has been proven effective to decrease your chances of getting infected if you're you're not in, uh, infected with HIV uh, positive or the virus? Uh, do you think that uh, that will change our sexual behavior within the community? I think so. I think it's. It's a phenomenal advancement, and I think there was a recent study um, that was published in Clinical Infectious Diseases and uh, involves over 600 people in San Francisco, and most of them were gay and bisexual men uh, anywhere between 20 and 68 years old, and um, they all took PrEP uh, or Truvada, and none of them, um, to my understanding, contracted HIV, though they did contract other STDs, so, which shows that they were engaging in, in sex, um, but they still managed to not contract HIV. So I think it's, uh, I mean, the research is showing that it is uh, a really uh, amazing way to combat HIV, especially in uh, populations that are more prone to contract it. So I think it, it's, it's almost impossible for it to not change behavior. Uh, I don't think that everyone is going to be going on PrEP. Uh, not everyone is at high risk. Uh, not everyone wants to have, you know, uh, take a daily medication. Um, but I think uh, with the research available, I think it's impossible for it to not change behavior in, in the gay and bi community. I mentioned earlier you're also you know, an editor for The Advocate, and um, you know, Advocate being one of our anchor LGBTQ media outlets that there is out there in the entire world. Um, with having like a magazine like Plus and, and speaking directly to the HIV AIDS community, I mean, I, I don't ever think that there is a time in which we would not have one, even if we found a cure for, for AIDS. What are your thoughts? That we wouldn't have a, 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 a publication devoted to HIV? Correct, yeah. Yeah, I, it's hard to imagine. I, I mean, I think that, you know, once, if we ever get to the day where it's eradicated um, completely, uh, possibly, um, but, uh, you know, right now there's so many people, there's millions of people living with it right now. Um, there's no, I don't see the CDC talking about having, you know, Truvada be, be something that, you know, all Americans 
are required to take or, you know, I don't know how they don't have any sort of vaccine for it. So it's not going away anytime soon. Uh, you know, hopefully one day in our lifetimes we will, we will see that. But um, the, the, the way that science uh, progresses, uh, I, just writing for PLUS for the years that I have, you see how um, painstakingly slow uh, medical advances can be. And there's a reason for that. Obviously, you can't, um, can't rush certain things. But, um, you know, obviously there was a need for speed, uh, for lack of a better term, during when people were dying in the 80s. And there was, there was very uh, little movement from the CDC to, to, address, to address it in a, in a, quick, in a, in a speedy manner. Um, but it's, it's, it's something that now, now it's, it's not moving as fast. Um, and uh, I look forward to the day when it does. I, I don't know if I'll be alive when, when HIV is no longer around. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I think we all hope for that day. Absolutely. Absolutely. And turning our attention now to just the advocate in general. I mean, the advocate, as I said earlier, is just uh, has been one of our anchor, you know, LGBTQ media outlets and was uh, was created during a time when we really didn't have much of anything out there in the world for LGBTQ news. And if you head to the website now, advocate.com, it looks like you've gotten a new uh, facelift. (laughs) Yes, we did. Yep, we have a new look on our website, and um, we are approaching the 50th anniversary of the magazine, which launched in 1967, uh, two years before Stonewall. Uh, so we're, we're busy kind of planning what is in store for the, for the 50th anniversary, which will be in 2017. Um, but, yeah, right now we're, we're uh, busy as usual. You know, the Kim Davis story has been... Has been really big, and I think it's larger than Kim Davis, the whole issue of religious freedom and whether that's going to hamper or hinder um, LGBT rights, I think is something that we're, we're paying very close attention to, as well as the 2016 election. And it, we, have, we have a debate tonight in California. So, uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, the Republican field, none of them, <laughs> none of the candidates now are any friend to to LGBT people. So right. it's something that we uh, obviously will be covering very closely. So I, I got a question for you. I noticed that now you've got a trending uh, tab bar there at the very top. And so those tabs change daily depending on what is trending, right? Um, it, not necessarily daily. Um, Kim Davis has been trending for weeks. Um, so it kind of just depends on what people are talking about. Uh-huh. So I think um, when when the issues change, then the tabs will change. So, um, yeah, that's it's, we kind of just keep it in line with with what's um, in the national discussion. Uh, you mentioned that you know the 50th anniversary is coming up, and and so I just kind of wonder. I mean, if this started like in 1957, uh, 67, 1967, um, you know, I. <laughs> Today, I'm sure of it that it's not just LGBTQI or queer people, you know, heading to the website for their their LGBTQI news. I'm sure that it's just a little bit of everybody. But it, can you speak to just kind of the growth of users within the last almost 50 years? Sure. I mean, I, I, when, when the advocate started, I think it was almost solely geared to gay men. And that has 
obviously changed. And, and like most things back then, it was, you know, the, the subjects and the pictures were not racially diverse. And so um, it was, you know, I think if you weren't a white gay man, it didn't feel like there was space for you. But obviously times have changed, and so has the advocate. There's, um, you know, it became the gay and lesbian publication, I think, don't quote me on this, but I think in the early 90s. So then it, we, we wanted to make a statement that women were part of our mission. And um, so we also have made sure to cover the issues of bisexual people, transgender people, um, the issues of, that affect people of color. And I think, it's, I think we're all proud of the fact that, that we've become, our coverage has been, become much more expansive. Um, I've been here for 11 years, and I've just seen how much it's, it's grown. And uh, I think we're, we're really proud of that. And, and we know that, that queer people um, come in every shape and size and, and ethnicity, and we want, to, we want to provide a resource for them all. This is going to show my, you know, uh, age here and kind of have jumped into the whole digital tech bandwab- bandwagon, but I'm I'm sure of it that, you know, 19 years old, not, you know, only 15 years ago. So uh, I came out, I do remember Advocate having, you know, just being a, a magazine. Um, I didn't really use the, the internet much, I guess. Back then, uh, so do do they still come in the form of magazine? That's gonna. I, 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 I'm they so embarrassed do, yeah. to ask. <laughs> yeah, no, we do. We do. We still have a print edition. Um, right now, it comes out. I believe every other month. I'm I'm mostly contribute to the to the website as executive ed- editor. Um, but it's so it's about six times a year. Um, the print edition, and um, yeah. So you know, it's it's. There's so much breaking news that it's uh, right. most of it goes online, but I think for print we will try to do more analysis and have have some deeper coverage there. But we certainly on the website have a lot of analysis and and a lot of um, commentaries and and um, op eds and you know we not just we don't just you know shoot out the news of the day um we we you know the next day or two days after we kind of look at the long-term effects of of people like kim davis or um donald trump um that so we can kind of get a a richer sense of of what's happening and not just um take it moment by moment sure sure i got uh you know last question for you i mean i asked about if you think that there would ever be a time we didn't need something like plus magazine um and i'll ask the same for for something like advocate which has become like the behemoth of lgbt news um as we head into the next chapter of our movement and we achieve equality do you think that there will ever be a time where we didn't need an LGBTQ specific, you know, uh, news source like Advocate? I can't imagine that because even as we make advances politically and legislatively, our daily lives are really what matter. And until it's one thing to get a law passed or um, for the Supreme Court to narrowly approve marriage equality. But can you still hold your girlfriend or boyfriend's hand on the street without being fearful? Can you still um, be in a state like Mississippi and come out to your boss? Um, 
even if the law protects you, um, are you going to be free of, of harassment? I mean, it's the day-to-day -day experience, experiences of being LGBT um, that, um, you know, haven't advanced far enough. And I think, you know, for people, especially people in the South, um, for transgender women everywhere, you know, it's still very hard to be um, accepted by society. And I think it's becoming easier, but it's not easy. Uh, and there's things that affect us very specifically and very differently than heterosexual people. And I don't see that changing. Um, I think our experiences, all is, is our lived experiences, experience is going to be very um, specific and singular for <laughs> as long as I can see. So I think there'll always be a place for outlets like the Advocate that tell our stories. Neil, thank you so much. Not being told by mainstream media. Right. Right. Neil, thank you so much for saying that, because then I have hopes for <laughs> what we do here on the radio program. But thank you so much for joining us here on the show. And please come back again. Sure. Thanks for having me. Follow Neil and uh, get all the scoop on his work. Again, he's the executive editor of The Advocate and also a contributing editor to Plus. So follow him on Twitter at nbroverman.